All right, we're going to be in First Peter this morning, chapter 5, and uh, looking primarily at verses 5 through 7. Uh, just, uh, just a note, um, cause I don't think I've mentioned this yet since I've been here. Typically when I'm preaching, if you like to follow along in the same version, I preach out of the ESV. So I know this isn't a particularly, uh, unique Bible, but if this is my preaching Bible, if you see me walking up with this, I know it's a black Bible. It doesn't give you much, <laughs> but, uh, if I'm walking up with this, um, we'll be, I'll be preaching out of the, out of the ESV unless... I forget this Bible, which I don't usually do, uh, or there's a specific reason. Um, the fun fact, if you've ever witnessed me shopping for Bibles, it's a, I, I think for the spectator, probably a very hilarious thing to watch because I buy my Bibles primarily on their ability to be swung around on stage. Like I always, I always preach out of the ESV I have for a while, uh, but as far as the particular, you know, uh, you know, make and model, so to speak. So I'll just be in the store kind of like going like this in the middle of the aisle to make sure it's not too heavy because I don't want to get my arms tired by the end of the message. Fun fact about me. First Peter chapter 5, uh, verses 5 through 7 is where we're going to be today. Um, so this is part two, if you read the e-news, of a message series, which I believe is going to be a four part series looking primarily at who we are called to be as a church, uh, the nature of, of servanthood, and what it means to adopt an identity of servanthood following in the footsteps, following the example of Jesus, our Savior. Uh, and, and as we get through this, we will see just how pervasive this theme of servanthood is throughout the scriptures. I uh, I played basketball in high school. That was my primary sport, and um, it's uh, it crossed my mind this morning, especially, but earlier in the week as well, uh, that it's unfortunate that Pastor Fred's not here. Uh, so my goal is, and my plan is, to continue this metaphor through the next couple weeks of this message series, and I'm going to pray he's here for at least the last one. I played basketball in high school, uh, big basketball town, small town, big into basketball. Um, our, uh, I don't remember the numbers. Um, our, our, my high school has won the state championships, oh man, I want to say six or eight times in the last 20 years, 20 to 30 years. Um, it's a lot of banners on the wall. And uh, I had the privilege of playing in two of those state championship games. We lost both times. But, uh, but I played in the games. And uh, my little brother Danny was able to win one, um, which I've used as a sermon illustration, I don't think here. Uh, but, but playing basketball in high school, I, um, one of the things about me I often was kind of the, the last person who didn't make the team. That happened to me a couple times throughout high school. Um, and one of the things that happens when you're, when you're good enough to make varsity, but you don't quite make it, is at the end of the season, they do call-ups. And so what would happen is, once we got to the playoffs, those 
Those players who were on junior varsity as the JV season ended for the year would get called up to varsity to come in for come to the practices and come in and warm up with the team and basically make the bench a little longer, practically speaking, in the games. But one of the greatest things about it was I remember the first time I got called up and called up to play in the playoffs on varsity was the varsity team had um, unique warm-ups and everyone would have a shirt with their name on the back. And the year that I got called up, um, some of the uh, the parents got together and made sure they ordered shirts for all of us on JV who got called up. So we got to wear the same warm-ups as the rest of the varsity players that had been on that team the whole year. And it was interesting because even though most of us knew we probably weren't going to get to play, especially when we got towards the semifinals and the finals, um, other than those you know, last five seconds of the game when it's basically over and they put you in so your mom can take a picture of you looking like you're doing something on the court, right? We knew that was probably the only bit of playing time, but there was something about just getting to suit up, right? On the other side of that, uh, especially if you watch professional sports, you'll occasionally see players that either due to injury or because they've, they've been suspended or something like that, they will wear just normal clothes to the game. I can picture NBA games where there's a player wearing a suit, jacket and tie, instead of wearing what everyone else is wearing. They're not wearing the uniform because they're not there to play. And so when I think back to that time in high school, just getting to wear the uniform as if I was going to get to play, as if I was going out there wearing the uniform and being prepared, wearing the uniform and having the school's name, having our school's colors. Even just that was an honor. Even just that made you feel a little different, like you were there to do something. Now, it's interesting because within Christianity we also have a uniform. And uniforms serve a number of purposes. First of all, they are all designed specifically for the task at hand. Right? I have, uh, I have a lot of uniforms at home. One of the reasons I, I find for... Uh, I have a really large closet, and my wife always makes fun of me, especially because of the number of shoes that I have which most of you, if you've met me, I hope, or I think at least, you would say I'm not the kind of guy that really cares that much about fashion. And you'd be right, I don't care that much about fashion, but I still have more shoes than my wife uh, because I have shoes for so many different things. I have like dress shoes for church. I have a pair of basketball shoes because I still play basketball. And I have a pair of running shoes that I keep for that one time, like every month or six that I go for a run. Uh, I ran a marathon a long time ago. I don't want to do it again. Uh, but I keep a pair of running shoes, and I try not to wear them for anything else in case, in case I want to run. I've got two pairs of bike shoes. Uh, and then I've got work boots for the winter, and I've got work boots for lawn care kind of things in the summer. And, I, and they all serve a different purpose. Um, I have roofing shoes so you don't tear up the shingles. Now, if I tried to wear my winter 
high, heavy, steel-toe, insulated work boots to play basketball. That probably wouldn't work so well, right? And in the same way, if I tried to wear a basketball uniform to go do siding in December, like I was doing last December, that would not be particularly comfortable because the uniform is what will best enable you to do the work set before you. That when I was siding last winter up at uh, Pastor Dennis Scott's house up in St. Albans, Vermont, some of you know Dennis, I was wearing uh, heavy jeans and insulated bib coveralls and a heavy Carhartt jacket and to keep me warm because that's what I needed. The uniform is not only just visually distinguishing, it is practical. It helps to do, helps to perform the task laid before you. And you can go down the list in your head of all of the different types of uniforms, whether it's, it's police officers or construction workers, whether it's someone going to an office job, of all of these different uniforms, that if you saw them, you would know exactly what that person was doing that day, or at least have a good idea, and think about practically how it's set up to support the task that needs to be done. And again, the uniform, so to speak, that God calls us to wear is the same. First Peter chapter 5, in the first uh, in the first five verses, the first four verses, he's giving, Peter's giving instructions to the elders and leaders among the church. In verse four, he relates that to Jesus as the chief shepherd. And then in verse five, the verse we're going to begin in today, he starts by saying, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders as a small Instruction to those who are younger within the congregation. But then he switches again and addresses not only leaders, not only the younger, but the entire church. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I don't know about you, but as we think about who we are as a church, that we want to be a church on the move. We want to be a church, I think we would all agree, we want to be a church where things are happening. Now, I'm not particularly concerned with being a church that is growing numerically and putting more bodies in the seats. I'm not necessarily concerned about being a church that's growing financially, that's building larger buildings or building nicer things. I am concerned that we are a church where the Spirit of God is moving. And when the Spirit of God moves, often that means more people come. When the Spirit of God moves, that often means that we are provided for better financially. When the Spirit of God moves, that often means that we need to increase the space that we have to fit what's happening. But it doesn't necessarily mean any of those things. What's far more important is just that God is moving that we are a church that is effective in allowing the Spirit to move through us. We want to be a church that allows God to do things. 
And as we think about that, maybe with me, you get a little bit uncomfortable with the second half of that verse, at least in the, that we really don't want to be a church that God opposes. I don't want to be trying to move against him, right? I don't want to be moving against him. I don't want to be opposed. And so in this short and simple verse... We, give this, we get this image that we are meant to clothe ourselves with humility. Now, we talked last week, if you weren't here, uh, we started discussing the idea of servanthood. And what we discussed was that ultimately a good working definition for servanthood was that it is humility put into action, that when we take a nature of humility within a person, what it looks like to, to put that on the move, make it actionable in the world, that is service. Service is the verb, version of humility. It's what it looks like to act humility out. And so I want to dig a little bit deeper this week and probably next as well into what humility really means. Because there's all sorts of things that we could point to, all sorts of ways that we try to be humble. And a lot of it has to do with what we say about ourselves or others, the posture that we take. And a lot of that is good. A lot of that ends up leading to what we've been talking about trying to avoid, which is just an Old Testament, Old Covenant way of being. That in our striving to be humble, we can end up with just a list of things that we don't say. A list of things about ourselves that we don't talk about. A list of phrases that we don't use in regards to other people. And we end up just trying to hide ourselves and anything that could be seen as boasting or pride. But in our hearts, in our hearts, that pride still exists. But ultimately, as the church, the uniform that we wear, what we must put on both to be identified and to be functional is humility. And let me break down the first of those a little bit uh, as well. When we put on a uniform, again, it does those two things. Now, when you are on a sports team, you will always have two different uniforms. What are they? Where's our sports people? Home and away, right? Right. It's a simple way to set it up, and your home jersey is, is in my experience, I could be wrong, it's always white, Right? It's universal. Home uniforms are always white. And your away uniform is just whatever color represents your school. My school was red and blue. Those were our colors. So our away uniforms, my, when I was in high school, we happened to have red ones. So when we were away, the other team wore white, and we wore a, a very bold red uniform. It was a way to distinguish ourselves from the other team. So if you saw a red streak out of the corner of your eye, you knew that was someone on your team. And as such, humility should be what distinguishes us from the rest of the world. 
It is a distinguishing mark of the Christian that we are clothed in humility. And this is where I think we get confused sometimes because we try to make humility an action. And then what we end up doing is we do things like talking negatively about ourselves, talking negatively about who God has called us to be and the gifts he's given us as a way to try to project humility. And we're not going to get really deep into all of that kind of practical stuff today, but you can probably imagine and think back to times in your life where in an effort to appear humble, to chase humility, you've done something like that. And you end up talking bad about you, yourself, who are a creation of God that he calls good, and you call it bad. In our quest for humility, we often fall into pride, the pride that says that we know better than he knows. We can take what he has called good and call it bad. So we should stop trying to do humility and recognize that the action associated with it should really be service and instead view humility as a garment that we wear. Which I recognize is an incredibly abstract concept that makes probably no sense to anyone. That was a little funny. But apparently you're all just worried. So let's move on. I got 80% of the way through this message this week. Studied and studied before I caught something that I'd never caught before. If we continue to read, we see two more verses. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Right? Which is just the reverse of pride cometh before a fall. Humility comes before exaltation. And then verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, I've heard that verse a thousand times. You probably have as well. I remember singing songs about that verse when I was a little kid. All right, I cast all my cares upon you. I lay all my burdens down at your feet. Remember that one? No? Okay, well, I remember that one. Right? Anytime I don't know what to do, I will cast all my cares upon you. I've heard this verse my entire my entire life, and I've always heard it, or I've, at least I've always remembered it, just in a complete vacuum. Just that verse alone, on the wall, right? Just stand alone. But it's very dangerous, right, to take verses out of context. I saw... Oh, Maybe I shouldn't say this in church, but I'm going to say it. I saw this picture online, and it was talking about the importance of having Bible verses in context, and it was a picture that was meant to be hung in your kitchen, right? Like right by your dessert bar, and it said, life is short, lick the bowl, right? So like, you know, when you're like, you're eating ice cream and you get to the end, right? Life is short, but the picture was that verse, and it was hung in the bathroom, Which, which is a totally different idea. 
and, and not at all good advice. So I saw that picture, and it was, and it was just the, the sign with those words, and it was hanging above a toilet, and it just said, context matters. <laughs> context. So I've, you're, no one's going to hear anything else I say this sermon. So this verse, I've only ever thought about it just on its own. Because this, and in my head, that verse, it's about anxiety, right? It's a verse about anxiety. When I have anxiety, I think about this verse. I cast my anxieties on him, and, and that's it. It's just what to do in that specific situation. But what's interesting is, at least in my English translation, there's not a capital C at the beginning of verse 7. It's not a new sentence. There's a comma before it placing it firmly within the context of verse 6, which begins, humble yourselves, which of course means verse 6 is just a continuation of the ideas put forth in verse 5. Verse 5, we are introduced to the concept, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verse 8, humble yourselves. And then the sentence continues into verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Remember as well, in the original text, there were no chapters and verses. Chapters and verses exist so we can get to the same place in the Bible quickly. So I can say, here's where I'm reading, and you can find it. They weren't there originally. These were just written as a, as a straight narrative, without the breaks. Also remember, just a side note, while we're here, all of your section headings. I have in chapter 5, shepherd the flock of God, final greetings, etc. Those are not in the original text. When you read your section headings, that's commentary, right? That is, that is commentary added by the translators. It's oral tradition. Helpful to find the story you're looking for, not safe for interpretation. So, in the original text, there were no verses. This is just one thought, which means this unbelievably famous, popular, we all know it verse about casting all of our anxieties on him is specifically talking about what it means to be clothed in humility. What that means, take the opposite. The opposite of being humble is being proud. We know that through common sense tradition and the verse here, where God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. They're set up in verse 5 as opposites. Humility and pride. If humility is casting our anxiety, all of our anxieties on him, then pride means casting all our anxieties on someone else. So what does that look like? Well, when we find ourselves in anxious situations, it's generally because there is some sort of problem. And when there is a problem that needs to be solved, that's causing issues, that's causing disagreements, 
a problem that maybe is hurting other people, and we are feeling the stress and anxiety of having to fix it, what is the first thing we try to do? We try to find someone else to share the responsibility with us, right? We look for a way, sometimes maliciously, sometimes not, but we, isn't it, I didn't think of a a story for this one beforehand, isn't it great when you think you did something wrong and then someone else brings you information that says it actually wasn't your fault, right? Like, you think you were the one who left the front door open and then you found out that your spouse actually went home and left again after you did? Anybody had that one happen or something similar, right? Somebody left the door open, somebody left the lights on, someone forgot to do this or that. It is such relief when we find out that something that we thought was our responsibility is actually another's. And we like that feeling so much that we will often chase it. We get ourselves into situations where we've made mistakes and we try to find a way to make it someone else's fault. And again, sometimes that looks like lying and deceiving to try and prove it was someone else to get out of it yourself. Sometimes. And I think most of us, most of us would say, well, I I don't do that. Most of us haven't tried to frame another person for a crime. Most of us don't go around intentionally lying to try and get others in trouble. But the verse doesn't make any distinction, does it? It says, cast all your cares on him. And so often, we can be tempted to cast our cares, cast our anxieties on others. Take the burden, take the load, and say, well... Actually, it's yours. Actually, it's yours. Now, a question that occurred to me this week was, well, if we have the option of casting our anxieties on him and he asks us to do that, why is it that we are so likely, so prone to cast our anxieties instead on another? Because I think we would all agree that that's true. That when I am anxious, my flesh, my nature, would much rather cast my anxiety on you than on him. Which, in a way, logically doesn't make sense, because if I cast my anxieties on you, if I blame you for something, or if I just make something your problem... You can be upset, there can be retaliation, that can make my life more complicated. If I cast it on him, I know he's not going to do that, and yet I have this urge, I have this urge to place it on your shoulders instead. I have the urge to place it on the shoulders of my family When I'm overwhelmed because of something that I'm dealing with, I'll place it on their shoulders to support me in it. 
Why do we do that? I prayed about this a lot this week, in part due to the fact that there were a lot of things that this week I had to take accountability for. As we have a whole lot of things kind of coming together all at once this week at the church, and things didn't get done when they should have been done, and it was my responsibility. Man, I fought. I fought that urge to look for any, and I'm not going to lie because I'm a pastor, but any justifiable reason why things weren't all my fault. So that I could put that, share that burden, that anxiety with another person. And here's what I realized. When we cast our anxieties on him, there's no escaping the truth. Because he brings everything to light. And I know it wasn't his fault. I can go to any single person in this room, and it might be a stretch, but I can find a way that the things that are difficult in my life, you could have been helping with. It'll be a stretch if you're here for like the first time. <laughs> if you're visiting, it'd be tough. But I could, I mean, if you guys had just come last week, none of this would have happened. I can stretch it to make it at least a little bit your fault. I can't do that with him. And he brings everything to light. If I cast all my anxieties on God, I also, I also have to admit that the problems in my life are my problems. That the things that I've done, I have done. I have to face that, which is a very humbling experience. a very humbling experience. So when you read through this passage and we get this sort of abstract idea about clothing ourselves with humility, that's a really nice thought, but we're not entirely sure what to do with it until it's clarified in verse 7. If you want to clothe yourselves with humility, if you want to put on the uniform of the kingdom of heaven, if you want to wear his colors, if you want to sit on his bench, you want to receive his instruction, his coaching, if you want to be counted among the group, and if you want to have any chance of being put in the game, you've got to show up wearing the uniform. Because if I had showed up to the state championships wearing green and yellow, which was the colors of our rivals... It didn't matter how many people fouled out of that game, I wasn't going to see playing time. I wouldn't get to run out. I definitely wouldn't be put in the game. If I showed up to that game in my work boots instead of my sneakers, doesn't matter how desperate, doesn't matter how tired everybody else is, I'm not getting put in the game. If we want to have a chance at being a part of the, of the, of the work of building the kingdom. If we want to be able to say, I was a part of it, I helped, I supported, 
which both are good, that's better. I did both. My, my junior year, I, sat, I, I, I just had a really good seat to watch the championship game my junior year. My senior year, I played half the game. Both were good. Playing is better. Wearing the uniform is great. Being in the game is a whole other thing. If you want to even have a chance to be used to build the kingdom, you've got to show up wearing the uniform. And this is what God says it is. And it's probably a lot more than this, but in this context, in this verse, where we start, put your anxiety on him. And I was really nervous about preaching this message this morning because even last night, I was really anxious. I was really anxious about all the things that have to come together this week. About all the things that I said I would do and hadn't completed. And then I was anxious about being anxious before I preached the sermon on being anxious. But in the midst of that, I was able to look and see just how many little things I was tempted to put on other people. And again, not even not lying, not making stuff up, not going on Facebook and ranting about it, even if I mentioned it to no one. Even if I avoided in those private conversations saying, well, and this person also didn't do this, which didn't make it any easier. Even if I did none of that, just in my heart. To take full responsibility before him. And not to, in all of these circumstances, church stuff, personal stuff, family stuff, all of it. Not pretending that no one else did anything, but that's a different discussion. Between me and God, here's where I fell short. Here's what I'm anxious about. Here's what I'm worried about. Here's what I'm concerned about. And God, I'm going to lay this at your feet. And it's so interesting that it uses that language, that very literal language of just pick it up and put it down. Right? You, take up, you pick up the thing and you, you set it down on him. You set it down before him instead of putting it in someone else's lap. And things can't be in two places, so you pick one or the other. And once you've given it to him, once you've cast your anxieties on him, you can't go put them on another person. You can talk to them about something that they did, maybe, that made things more difficult for you. But all of a sudden, that's not piling anxiety on them, making them feel guilty or ashamed or worried themselves because you've already placed it somewhere else. And in that moment, you can go to that person in humility. That's how we are to operate as a church. That even if we go to another person with a concern about something that they did that made our lives more difficult, we're owning our anxiety, we're owning our worry which is based in fear, 
Because we fear, we say, well, you didn't communicate that I was supposed to do this, and now I'm afraid that I'm going to look bad. I'm afraid that I'm not going to be able to do something. Take that fear and put it on him. That's how we relate to one another. If you do this, I'm going to warn you, it's amazing how many little anxieties we place on one another without even realizing it. But that's not what our team does. It's not what our Savior did when he came. That's not what he calls us to do and to be. So this is a step one, church. I remember my senior year of high school. Not even the first day of practice, first day of tryouts. Our coach made it clear. From this day forward, our eyes are on the state championship. That's what we were headed to. We had just been runners-up the year before. Most of our starters came back. A lot of our starters came back. And from day one, it was this is where we are headed. I don't know about you. I'm not in ministry to see God do small things occasionally. It's not why I'm here. It's not what I'm called to. And I know that's not what we are called to as a church because I interviewed extensively with our board, and that's not what they were looking for either. And I made it clear, I think, that that's not what I was looking for. And I don't have a goal that is to run a thousand on a Sunday. That's not my goal. My goal is to be a vessel and be a part of a church where God does powerful things. Whatever that looks like. Maybe powerful numbers, maybe powerful transformation, maybe powerful life change, maybe powerful impact on our community. So I approach this with that same focus and attitude. If we want to do, if we want to be a part of God doing something big and something powerful, something miraculous, something world-changing, even if it's only world-changing for one person, we've got to start at the beginning with focus and intention. You don't start the season focused on, with your eyes on a state championship, and run half speed through your defensive drills. It was full tilt, full speed, full effort, perfection every moment in pursuit of that goal. So don't take this home. If that's where you want to go, if that's where we want to go, if you want to be a part of that, don't take this home and look for a way to apply it now and then throughout your week. You can come back next week and say, hey, this time on Tuesday this happened, Pastor, and I can appreciate that you actually paid attention. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Let us pursue greatness in this area as He enables us. Because it doesn't say cast some of your anxieties on Him or most of them or the big ones. 
says all of them. Every time I've ever been late for anything, it's been somebody else's fault. (laughs) Every time I've been, if anything, man, if every light had just been green, I could have made it on time. But those those lights were red as they should be and as I should expect them to be, right? Well, if there had just been no line at at McDonald's, then I could have gotten lunch for the kids and we would have made it on time or... Every time I've ever been late for anything, there's something else I can put that anxiety on. Or I can say, yeah, things happened. Yeah, there was an accident on the freeway. I could have left earlier. That's a small example, but that's kind of the whole point. Because those little ones are just practice. One of my, li- my wife's, I'll close with this. One of my wife's uh, sayings she uses, and I just read it because it was in her uh, studio policies for the school she teaches violin at. She says, practice doesn't make perfect. Rachel hates that phrase. Practice does not make perfect. Practice makes permanent. The way you practice is the way you perform. The way you practice If you have bad form when you practice your jump shots, you're going to have bad form in a game. If you practice running half speed, you're not going to be as fast in the game. It becomes permanent. So even those small things that seem so insignificant, the small annoyances because someone cut in front of you in the drive-thru lane, and that is why you were two minutes late to the meeting, that little grudge in your heart, That's the practice. So let's go this week looking for small opportunities to cast our anxieties on him instead of casting them on others to bear. Let's pray. Father, we are... uh, Father, I pray we be humbled in your presence. And often I pray that as because it makes sense that you're so great and you're so you're so powerful, you're so far above that if we are in your presence, if we put ourselves before you, how could we be anything but humbled? It it must just come, but I'm recognizing in this moment as we study this scripture, as I've looked at my own heart throughout this week that We can walk before you. We can come to church without laying down our true and authentic selves. And you haven't called us to humble our fake selves. You've called us to true and authentic humility. So I pray, Lord, that we would cast all of our anxieties, all of our worries, all of the troubles of our world on you. Because if we leave them behind, if we place them on someone else, we're not authentically coming before you. We're not authentically taking ownership of our own, our, our own thoughts and feelings and actions and mistakes. We are coming before you as inauthentic people. We are humbling a version of ourselves that isn't real. So as you prepare our church to do good works in your name, I pray that we dawn this clothing of humility 
that we put ourselves below and behind others. That we are honest with ourselves and with you about what we're feeling and thinking, about what our insecurities are and our worries are, the thoughts that we have about how we're not good enough so that you can heal them. And all we do, Lord, we give you praise. Send your spirit upon us to reveal in us the things that we cannot see in ourselves, that we are so blind to reveal, give us eyes to see where we need to change and where we need to grow. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, the humble servant, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.